And we wouldn't have thought so either. We wouldn't have thought so either because we would have expected Jesus to do exactly what dead people do. It's why in the Gospels after the crucifixion, we don't see anyone standing outside Jesus' tomb counting backwards from 10, 10, 9, 8, 7, cue the sun, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. There was no one waiting outside the tomb because everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. They did exactly what anyone would do if they expected Jesus to do what dead people do. Stay dead. The text tells us that when the Sabbath was over and the people were free to leave their homes and go back to work, Mary Magdalene and a group of women went out and they purchased spices. They purchased spices to re-anoint or re-embalm Jesus' body. And the reason that they had to go out and purchase the spices at that time is that they weren't able to purchase the spices ahead of time, before the Sabbath. Because the events had happened so quickly. Late Thursday night, Jesus was arrested. Friday morning, they woke up, and that's when they heard about it. And by Friday evening, Jesus was dead and buried. It all happened so quickly. They were, they were all just reeling. They believed, like all of Jesus' followers believed, that he was a teacher. And they believed that he was a miracle worker from God. And they'd hoped that he was the Messiah. But clearly, they figured they were wrong. Because God wouldn't allow his Messiah to be killed. And God certainly wouldn't have allowed his Messiah to be killed by the shameful act of crucifixion. And they'd watched him die. And then they followed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus probably paid Pontius Pilate so that they could recover Jesus' body. Jesus' followers were in absolute shock that all these events had taken place so quickly. In their minds, that just couldn't have happened. Jesus came to Jerusalem, and everybody expected for him to proclaim himself Messiah. Yet before they knew it, there they were at a tomb that they'd never seen before, where they watched Jesus laid to rest. They were likely incredulous as they watched those two men hurriedly embalm Jesus' body. And no doubt, they spent the next couple of nights with their heads spinning. But after the Passover, they had to do something. So they decided they were going to go back, hoping to go into the tomb and spend some much-needed time to emotionally catch up with the events that they had just endured. The text tells us that they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, this is in Mark chapter 16, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. Well, then Luke, who thoroughly investigated everybody that was a part of this entire story, then Luke said this in Luke chapter 24. They went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
And here's the thing you need to know, and it's probably a part of the story you've never considered before. But when Jesus's closest followers peered into the empty tomb, not a single one of them, not one of them assumed a resurrection. When Mary and the group of women peered into that tomb, that empty tomb, they assumed exactly what we would have assumed. They assumed that somebody had stolen Jesus's body. John tells us that after they saw the empty tomb, they ran back into the city to find the disciples who were in hiding. We go to John 20. We go to John 20. There we go. There we go. They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And then Luke added that to the disciples, the story sounded like nonsense. So they didn't believe it. So, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes so much sense that even Jesus' closest followers felt the exact same way on the morning that it was discovered that his body wasn't there. None of them, none of them assumed resurrection. They assumed what everybody would assume. They all assumed that Jesus would stay dead. But Peter and John had to see for themselves. So Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. And stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. And we know John was there with him from John's account. And after they'd seen that Jesus wasn't there, they went away. But they weren't shouting as they went away, Jesus is alive. And they weren't proclaiming, it's a miracle. They went away wondering what in the world happened. See, this is a critical part of this narrative that we, we really shouldn't overlook. The men and women who were closest to the action Along with the writers of the New Testament documents, they all very candidly, very honestly documented their skepticism and their disbelief. And it would be this very same people who would before long become the spokespeople of this brand new movement that was soon to begin. So do you realize what that means? It means that these people were so honest that they documented their own disbelief. Now, it's interesting. People say, well, you know, is the Bible reliable? Can you really believe it? Don't you think if you were writing something where you wanted to fool a bunch of people into a religion you'd made up, you'd not have shown all your mistakes, including your own disbelief? See, from that fact, we can know that these people were not gullible, wild-eyed, superstitious people. They were faithful people. They were faithful people who had given up all hope at that moment. These were people who belonged to a movement that seemed to have stopped moving. In fact, the text says that on the evening they discovered that Jesus' body were was missing, they were still trying to figure out what they were going to do without him. We go to John 20. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. John admitted in his gospel that at first he'd lost his faith. In fact, that they all had lost their faith. 
They were all terrified. They were all hiding behind locked doors. They were all avoiding the Jewish leaders. They were all thinking, they took Jesus. They're probably coming after us next. And when Jesus paid them a visit, the text tells us that they responded in the exact same way you and I would have responded if someone we'd seen die and then be buried showed up in the room with us a few days later. Here's what happened in Luke 24. The whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. You think? Think about it. Your friend's dead and now he's standing there in your living room? And Jesus said to them, and and by the way, when Jesus said this, and, and Jesus does this a lot in the scriptures, so it's always fun to read. I think he was cracking up inside when he said what he's about to say, because I think he loved to do this to the disciples. But here's what Jesus said to them. He says, why are you frightened? Why are you frightened? Why are you guys so scared? I'm your dead friend who's standing in your living room. What are you scared about? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? He showed up in a room with men who had seen him crucified and die. With men who knew where he was buried. They saw where the body was placed. With men who assumed that very evening that someone had taken his body And there he was. And he said to them, why are you so frightened? How could they not have been frightened? But then he said to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus was like, were you guys even paying attention when I talked to you? By the way, the answer to that was no. Anytime Jesus gave them bad news about himself or what was going to happen to him, they didn't pay any attention. See, the things that Jesus was saying to them at the time made no sense. They figured when he was telling them all the things he would suffer, he had to be exaggerating. They thought, he's the Messiah. He's not going to die on us. But Jesus told them, this is what I told you. When I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. By the way, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's just the way they described what would become the Hebrew Bible. Jesus had just spent three years trying to connect the dots for these people, trying to connect them from the Hebrew Bible to his life to what was going to happen in the future. So he kept on reminding them, It was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and then rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, which is exactly where they were sitting. There is forgiveness, forgiveness of sins to all who repent. And then Jesus looked at them and he said something that would change their lives, something that actually It's what caused us to be here this morning and caused others all around the world to gather this morning. Jesus looked at them and he said, you are all witnesses of these things. And they certainly were. They were witnesses to the event that changed the world. They were witnesses to the event that launched the Jesus movement. They were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that created the movement that we know of as Christianity. It's the resurrection of Jesus that launched this 
the church, the ecclesia. The resurrection of Jesus launched the church and created our faith. You see, before the resurrection, there were no Christians. After the crucifixion, there were no believers. After the crucifixion, everybody had given up hope. Nobody was going to launch a movement at that time in Jesus' name. Nobody was going to keep the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son in circulation. Nobody was going to repeat Jesus' teachings to anyone at that moment. As far as they were concerned, if it was possible for Jesus to be arrested and crucified, he must not have been who he claimed to be. But then, the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. Peter and Andrew and James and John and Mary, all of them, all of them admitted that nobody was expecting no body. All of them expected Jesus to stay dead. But today, the reason that we believe Jesus rose from the dead is their testimony. That's what witnesses do. Witnesses testify. Witnesses give testimony. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because those eyewitnesses told us so. We believe because Matthew, who was an eyewitness, documented his experience with Jesus. We believe because Mark, who spent time with Peter and got Peter's eyewitness account of the events, we believe because Mark believed that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe because Luke who came along later and thoroughly investigated the events and talked to as many eyewitnesses as possible because Luke put together an account of Jesus' life. We believe. We believe because John, who was an eyewitness, also put together an account of Jesus' life. We believe because Peter believed that Jesus rose from the dead and later on wrote letters to the churches to say as much. We believe because James Jesus' little brother, who showed up late in the story, we believe because he declared his big brother to be his Lord. Think about that one for a second. If you have a big brother, what would it take for you to be convinced that your big brother was the Messiah? That right there should tell you it's true. And lastly, we believe because the apostle Paul believed. The least of the apostles believed. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead. So do you realize what that means? It means that it's irrelevant when somebody says, well, I don't believe the Bible's true. I don't believe the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. Because listen, that's not why we believe Jesus rose from the dead. We believe because of exactly what Jesus told the men who were in that room and later told his followers who witnessed his resurrection Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The events surrounding the resurrection were fully, thoroughly documented, and then they were scrupulously copied and gathered and then distributed all over the world. And that's why we're here today. And that's why we can say that the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. The foundation of the Christian faith is an extraordinary event with profound implications for your life, 
for your fears, for your hopes, and for your dreams. Peter, who peered into that empty tomb. Peter, who followed Jesus from the day that he invited him to take him fishing. Peter, who believed and then unbelieved and then denied he'd ever believed and then re-believed. Peter, the apostle whom tradition tells us was murdered in Nero's Rome because of his faith in Jesus. That Peter, before he was executed, gave an account of Jesus's life. And in one of his letters, Peter, when he was an old man, he was looking back at his experiences, said this to the first century believers, the first century Christians. And he also said this to you and to me, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter believed that God was Jesus's father and that Jesus's resurrection is the thing that gives us hope. Now, I want you to look at this because this is pretty cool. The word hope used in this verse is not used as a verb here. Peter was not saying, oh, I hope this is true. Here, hope is used as a noun. Peter was saying that because of what Jesus has done, we have hope. We have hope because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you were to ask Peter, Peter, what's the foundation of your faith? He wouldn't have said, oh, it's the parable of the prodigal son. He wouldn't have said it's the parable of anything. He would have said, my faith in Jesus was resurrected when I saw my resurrected friend. Peter continued. Next, he said, that this new life that Jesus bought for us by his resurrection included for us an inheritance. We go to verse four, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, the use of the word inheritance was not random, wasn't just chosen out of the air. Peter chose the word inheritance for a reason. What's the reason? Well, let me ask you a question. Who gets an inheritance? Children get an inheritance. And it was through Jesus' resurrection that God gave to us as his children, as his beloved sons and his beloved daughters, an inheritance that can never be taken away. By dying on the cross for our sin, Jesus paved the way for us to have a relationship with God that could be described as the relationship between a perfect father and a son or a daughter. Who could want for a better inheritance? And what comes next is probably the most extraordinary thing of all. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. See, by saying this, we know that the apostle Peter believed in heaven. Why is that notable? Well, it's notable because the apostle Peter did not believe in heaven because it was just something he was told as a child. As a child, it's actually very unlikely that Peter was told anything about heaven because there's almost nothing about heaven in the Jewish scripture. In fact, there is so little about heaven in the Jewish scriptures that half of the Jewish leaders didn't even believe there was a heaven. They believe that once you died, you died. That's it. They believe that you live for the pleasure of God and then life ended and it ended when it ended. But Peter believed in heaven because of something, not that he saw as a child, not that he heard as a child, but something he saw as an adult, a resurrected Jesus who often spoke about heaven. And it's in heaven that our inheritance is securely stored and it's stored there for all of God's people. 
Peter continued, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see it there? The Peter, the same Peter who at one time denied his Lord, no longer doubted God's love. In fact, not even the pain and suffering of his world could cause Peter to doubt God's existence anymore. You want to know why? Because Peter saw Jesus suffer. And Peter saw Jesus die. And then Peter had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. See, Peter's faith was not tethered to the imaginary God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. That's not the true God. And if you've lost faith in God because of the evil in the world, if you've lost faith in God because of the pain and suffering in the world or because of your own pain and suffering, if you've lost faith in God because of those things, your faith wasn't in the true God either. So I want you to take a moment and reconsider. Because the men and women who brought us this story, who brought us the story of Jesus, saw, and some even experienced, pain and suffering we can't even fathom. And yet, they believed. They believed because Peter and the men and women who followed Jesus saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person they'd ever known. And they believed anyway because their faith was not in the imaginary God that never allows bad things to happen to good people. Their faith was in the true God introduced to them by Jesus, the God who resurrected Jesus from the dead, the very same God who invites you, the very same God who invites us to address him as heavenly father. It was a resurrected Jesus that completely reframed all of Peter's life. And the invitation of Easter for me and the invitation of Easter for you is to allow the resurrection of Jesus to completely reframe our lives as well. See, Jesus' resurrection reframed Peter's life in this way after Peter was confronted with Judas and the henchmen from the temple in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter ran for his life. But after the resurrection... Peter walked into the face, into the mouth of danger in order to give his life away. In his next letter, Peter pivoted from the resurrection to the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. And he said something relevant for all of us. Here's what Peter said. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, what Peter did by saying that is he took us all the way back to that very first day when Jesus stepped onto the banks of the Jordan River as an adult. And John the Baptist, remember Jesus' cousin, not knowing what the future held, pointed to Jesus and he said, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And nobody knew what the heck he was talking about. 
Remember that? But Peter, with the benefit of hindsight, looking back at the crucifixion, looking back at the resurrection, said, now we understand that God sent a perfect lamb, not to just cover over and atone for our sin, but to pay for our sins so that the path would be open for us to have a relationship with God as Jesus invited us to call him our father. See, the point of all that is this. We know that God is for us because Jesus died for us, not because things always work out for us. This was the power of the resurrection. This was the power of the resurrection, even in a culture that was unbelievably dangerous. That beyond everything they'd experienced, everything they saw, these men and women emerged with extraordinary faith in God and in Jesus, the Son, because of the resurrection. That's why we say the foundation of the Christian faith is an event, not a book. It's an extraordinary event with profound implications for your life. It's how we know, as Peter knew, with certainty. It's how we know with confidence that God is and God is personal. It's how we know that suffering is not evidence of God's absence. Because men and women who saw and experienced extraordinary suffering maintained their faith anyway because the foundation of their faith was not a perfect world or even the promise of a perfect world where bad things never happen to good people. The foundation of their faith was a resurrected savior. It's how we know that heaven is real. Not because we were told it as children. Not because somebody was trying to make us feel better. Not even because it's something that pastors say at funerals to make loved ones feel like one day they'll be reconnected with the people they've lost. We know that heaven is real because Jesus taught us that heaven is real and then Jesus conquered death. When a guy conquers death, you should listen to what he said. And perhaps the most extraordinary thing of all is that the resurrection of Jesus frees us. The resurrection confirms everything Jesus taught. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is the savior of the world. One of the things that bothered the religious leaders more than anything, and you saw that in the video, is that Jesus would look at sick people who came to him to be healed, but instead of healing them, he would first say, your sins are forgiven. And they would think, only God can forgive sin. And Jesus would smile and say, yeah, and only God can do this one too. Stand up and walk. And only God can do this. Now you can see. And only God can do this. Now you're healed. Now, one last thing. The point of the crucifixion of Jesus is not simply heaven. The point of the crucifixion of Jesus is also that we know we can be forgiven We know we can have a right standing with God because Jesus has the power and has the authority to forgive sin, which he proved by rising from the dead. Do you know what that means? It means that forgiveness is available to you if you have gone to God and have told him, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner 
And I ask for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. So now I want to turn from those sins and turn to you and give you my heart and give you my life. I want to follow you and I want to trust you forever as my Lord and Savior. Because when you go to him in that way, you can know for certain that you're loved by God and that heaven awaits and that your sins are forgiven. See, all of which sets you free to love as he loved and to forgive as he forgave. Jesus called that the mark of the covenant. And it's the mark of the covenant that allows us to love people who are difficult to love. And it's the mark of the covenant that allows us to love people who are nothing like us. And it's the mark of the covenant that allows people to love people who will never love us back. That means that when you give your life to Jesus, you've stepped into this new, amazing kind of relationship between God and mankind. You've, you've entered into the kingdom that is not of this world. We refer to it often as the upside-down kingdom. Indeed, it means you've entered into the kingdom that makes no sense to this world, and you've entered into the kingdom that would ultimately circle the globe and impact every single civilization for almost 2,000 years. You've stepped into the kingdom that has a king who chose to give his life for his subjects, a king who is worthy of your devotion and a king who is worthy of his name. That king, our king, is risen. That king, our king, lives. And that king, our king, bids us to come to him so that we can live forever in his presence. And that's what we're celebrating on this Easter Sunday. And quite frankly, that's what we're celebrating every other day of the year as well. We are his children. And there is no greater blessing in all the world than that. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this Easter morning, this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for gathering together your people. Thank you for a celebration of a tragedy that turned into a triumph. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for calling us, even though you know everything about us. Thank you for using us anyway. And God, as we continue on throughout this day, enjoying this celebration, and throughout this week, God, allow us to maintain our faith in you and to tell all the world what we've seen and what we've learned by being your people. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So that concludes our service this morning. But before you leave, I want to invite you all back to join us next Sunday. We will start a new series. We're calling this series Follow. And here's what we're doing with the series. You know, for many people, the Christian life feels like a long game of Jesus says. Like Simon says. Jesus says pray. Jesus says give. Jesus says go to church. But upon further investigation, we really discover that Jesus' invitation to his first century audience was an invitation to a relationship. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this next series. I hope you can join us. If you don't have a church home, please consider Hammock Street. Thank you all for being here. Have a great Easter. You're all dismissed. Enjoy your coffee and donuts, and we'll see you all next week.